Hey, good morning. Wow, you guys are looking great today. So glad that you are here. Uh, Matt Holloman did an amazing job last week as Reba and I were away in Florida with our son Grayson, but we're just thrilled to be back with you this morning. Grab your Bibles, your devices. As Morgan just read, we're back in the book of Ephesians. And so today is the last Sunday in Ephesians for a few weeks. We'll take a break for our Easter resurrection series starting next week, Palm Sunday. So I wanted to end with a real fun topic with you this morning, and I want to talk to you about anger, bitterness, and forgiveness. Isn't that exciting? Aren't you so glad that you came this morning for those subjects today? Yeah, it's really going to be a lot of fun, but I want to get right into the teaching because there's a lot that I want to cover with you on these three topics of anger, bitterness, and forgiveness for our lives. Paul gets very practical with us. Remember, as we have studied through the book of Ephesians, The first three chapters of this six-chapter book is primarily about the gospel. Paul lays this amazing foundation for you and I because when he gets to the practical stuff in 4, 5, and 6, that we need some fuel to run on to, to see these things come to fruition in our lives. And that fuel is the gospel, the understanding of where we were and where we are today and how we got there through that of the redemption of Christ within our lives. So we find ourselves in chapter 4 again this morning. We're going to talk about something extremely practical, and that is anger, bitterness, and forgiveness. So let me read to you starting at verse 31 and then two verses out of chapter 5. So 4 and 31, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then he says in chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so when I read these texts, what I first just uh, just understand about them, and it jumps out at me, that these texts are very communal in nature. What I'm saying is that this is how we live out our faith together. So it reminds me of something that we've said so many times, and that is that our faith is not a private faith. Understand that, that our faith is not a private faith, that it is designed by God to live out in community. So you and I live this faith out together. Contextually, what these verses I just read cover is how our relationship in the body of Christ should look, how you and I treat each other, but yet it's not limited to that kind of relationship either, but it's very much about all of our relationships, how you and I live out our lives together, both in here and outside of this place. Now, this is the church at Ephesus. It is a very eclectic church. I mean, it is made up of all kinds of people with all kinds of ideas from different backgrounds, some that come from the Jewish faith, some from the non-Jewish faith, some that come from the temples that are over 50 of them found in the city of Ephesus itself. So I put in my notes, it's a very human church is really what it is. It's made up of humans. And when you put a bunch of humans together, what do we do? We act like humans. Isn't that right? 
And because of that, Paul writes this to the church of Ephesus and he talks to them about their anger. Why? Because they get angry at each other. Why would you read that to us, Mark? Because we get angry at one another as well. And so he talks to them about their anger. He talks to them about their bitterness because it doesn't take much of life to make you bitter at times. He talks to them about clamor and that of slander as well. But I want to frame this properly for you this morning because the church at Ephesus is a thriving church. It is the gateway to the gospel coming to the West and to Europe. It is how you and I receive the gospel through the church of Ephesus. So God is doing a really powerful work through them because through them that all of Europe is evangelized. So it is a great and a powerful church in the middle of their humanity. God is using them. So I wrote this week that God does not use perfect churches or perfect people. Can you say amen? God does not. No. So this is how he works through Ephesus in the middle of their humanity. And this is how he works through you and I in the middle of our humanity as well. He works through churches that have unified themselves, not on agreeing on everything, but yet they've unified themselves on that of the gospel, who they were and who they are now and their identity in Christ and what God has done for them. And in the middle of all of this, in the middle of their humanity and ours as well, Paul calls us. He calls us. He's called us from something to something. Realize how God always works in our lives. God does not just call us. God always calls us from something to something. And I want to show you what that is for a moment It's, again, Ephesians chapter 4, this time verse 1, and we're going to get to our subject in a moment, but we have to lay this foundation. It says that, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So corporately and individually, Paul is saying this, in light of the gospel, in your response to the gospel, you should live this way. See, God has called us from something to something. And he says, this is the manner in which you should conduct yourself. This is how you should live in response to the gospel. But I don't do these things that God has called me to do, so God will love me more. That's not it at all. Or that I have a more elevated relationship with God. It's not that at all. No. In fact, I love you in the way that God has called me to love you because God loved me. And so it is out of that love for God that we find these things taking place in our life. And it's how we conduct ourselves. So I have a question for you then. What is my response to the gospel? What is your response to the gospel? That's, that's a big question. How are you responding to what God has done in your life? Can I tell you how Paul has called you to respond? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what Paul is saying is this. If I get the gospel, if I have a real good understanding of the gospel, then I'm more likely to respond properly through my actions in life. If I have an understanding of the gospel, then I'm more likely to respond properly through the actions of my life. For some of you now, you can hear the sound of the guilt 
dump truck backing up to your life and about to unload on you, right? Because of the week that you've had and the things that you've done in your life, you can hear the beep, beep, beep sound and you know what that means, right? No, so I want you to stop for a minute and realize that that's not what Paul is doing here. What he's talking about for you and I is what we call so many times the dirt road of sanctification. It's that space between the already, the redemptive work of Christ in my life, and the not yet, and that is a culmination of his redemption, and that is my glorification. But I live in this space in between, and we call it the dirt road of sanctification. It's this time where God is working in our life, and we are growing, and we get it right some days, and we don't get it right other days. And in those days, we don't get it right, and when we get it right, we are covered by the grace of God. Amen. Amen. Yes. So don't let the dump truck of guilt back up and load your life up this morning with this teaching. But that is not what Paul's purpose is at all. But he's dealing with the real of our lives is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with those moments when you have uncontrolled and unresolved anger. And when that And when that anger is not resolved in your life, it finds itself transforming into bitterness. He's dealing with the real of our lives, but he's also giving us the ideal that Christ has set for you and I. And that ideal that Christ has set for you and I, according to Paul, is that of forgiveness. Now, there's two things that I understand about anger. First is this, and they both make me angry, okay? So the first is this. Anger is destructive to our relationships. That does make me angry. It really does. Anger is destructive to our relationships. The second thing is this, that it's difficult to deal with in our own hearts. It is absolutely difficult to deal with in our own hearts. So I heard a story. I heard a story of an elderly couple who were talking over dinner one evening. They're reminiscing about all of the things that they have argued about over the years. Now, if you've ever had that discussion with your spouse, you know that you look back at those things and realize how minuscule and how minor so many things that cause you to argue over. And you kind of laugh and you kind of chuckle about those things. But the wife says to her husband in this moment of humble candor, she says, honey, I'm so sorry for all the times I've blown up on you, but I'm puzzled as to how you have always kept your composure. And the husband responds, oh, honey, it's easy. When you blow up on me, I just go clean the toilet, is what he said. And she said, does that really help? And he says, oh, it always helps because I'm using your toothbrush. (laughs) Got an amen. And if that amen represents someone that's done that, You're the man. Okay, that's all I can say. All right. You're also single. But here's the thing, right? Yeah. We laugh about this, but it's so true. How many times we look back in our lives and we see how anger has affected relationships in our lives. Some of you have lost relationships because you could not control your anger. You've done damage to those things. Some of you have lost jobs and some of you have lost marriages and friendships. Some of you have even gone to jail because you could not control your own anger. That is very true, right? It is true. 
You said things that you wish you could take back in those anger moments. Have you noticed one of the greatest things that Apple has ever done in that the new Apple um, operating system on your phones is that you can unsend text messages? Have you have you done that yet? Isn't it amazing? You can unsend them until somebody opens them. You can do that. Yes. And, and so I have done that a few times. Not that I've sent anything bad to anybody, but I've sent to the wrong person. But I would just want to say to you, life does not work that way. Isn't that right? Life does not work that way. And I know you're probably sitting here saying, well, Mark, you don't understand, you know, and you're making the mistake because you're saying that I'm not this person that's prone to all these violent outbursts when you talk about anger. And so you're kind of excluding yourself as, well, I don't ever struggle with this, and this is not a real problem in, in, in my life as well. And I do realize that some of you are more aggressive in how you process anger. And then there's some of you that are more passive in the room in how you process that anger. I realize that some of you, you know, when you are upset or you're angry, you give the silent treatment. Isn't that right? The cold shoulder. There's nothing worse in life than getting the silent treatment. Isn't that right? Because I'm a talker and I don't deal well with silent treatment. You punish people by removing the blessing of your presence from their life as if you somehow are God and turning your face away from them, you know, just punishes them. It's like speak to the hand because the face doesn't want to hear it, right? Right? And, and, and you know how, how that is. Absolutely. For some of you in the room, though that you nurse bitterness and that bitterness manifests itself in sarcasm and it becomes avoidance and eventually it morphs into disdain for an individual in your life. So what do I do, Mark? Well, can I tell you for the next few minutes together, this teaching is not necessarily about three ways for you to control your anger. No. This is about your heart. Because that's where this begins. That's where this is fed in your own heart. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews refers to bitterness as a root of bitterness. Because it is a heart problem for you and I long before it ever is a word problem in our life. So I start with a question. Is my anger really that big of a deal, right? Is my anger really that big of a deal? Because you're saying, come on, Mark, I just get upset, but I've never killed anybody. You know, I thought about it, but I've never gone through with it, right? And, and so, you know, I'm just, I dish out some silent treatment every, every once in a while. Hey, I have the right to be angry. Do you know what's been done to me? And my anger is absolutely justified. Or some of you saying, well, I'm just angry at the brokenness of the world and of the economy and of politics and all of that kind of thing. And somebody probably says, well, my, my, Anger is like what you would call righteous anger. You know, I'm angry at sin and what the devil does. And even that kind of sin, righteous sin, must have a shelf life in our life as well that you can't run on that as fuel for your life. Can I tell you what Jesus says about this subject to you and I? Thank you. Here's what he says. Here's what he says in the book of Matthew chapter 5 in verse 44. He says, but I say to you, listen to the words of Christ, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't you just sometimes dislike the things that Jesus says to us, don't you? Yes. Do you not even, do not even the tax collectors do the same, he said. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, he says. Now, let me tell you something before we begin. Our conduct, the way we conduct ourselves is a proof of our redemption. It's not the source of our redemption. So let's don't get all of this upside down. I'm not loving you because I want God to love me more. I'm loving you because of his love for me. Understand that. Yes. If not, and we get that all turned around, we get what I call cattywampus theology. Okay? Have you ever heard the word cattywampus? Yes. Google it. It's there, all right? It's a very southern term, and it has nothing to do with theology, but I just wanted to use it because I think it talks about this. We get our theology upside down, that somehow that my redemption is brought about through my conduct, and that's not true at all. But my conduct is a proof of the redemptive work of Christ in my life. So I go back to the question we started with. Is my anger a big deal? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes, it is. <laughs> it is. So let's pray and leave. No, we need to talk about this, right? Because you need to understand why your anger is a big deal. And I need to understand that as well. And I can tell you that I, and through my study over the last week or so of this subject, man, God has just done a number in my heart as well. So jump on the bus with me this morning, okay? Because God is speaking to me as well. And here's what Jesus says regarding our anger. Because Jesus is the one that determines what's a big deal for us and what is not, right? So here's what he says about this and about the anger of our lives. He says that we're to love and to pray for those that persecute us. Who's he talking about? He is talking about those that have harmed us, both for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of themselves as well. So it's an all-encompassing statement from Jesus. It is. But look how he qualifies love and prayer. He says that loving and praying for those that harm us is not or is just not what good Christian people do. There's something more than that. And I got to read into completely to what Christ is saying to you and I. What he's saying to us is this, that the measuring stick, read that text again, the measuring stick for you and I being sons and daughters of God where we should be in our life is not my love for those that are nice to me, but it is love for those that harm me. So I thought about this a lot, a lot this week. Is it really possible, and I'm just putting this out there for you to think about for a moment. Is it possible, in looking at Jesus' words, to say truthfully that we are sons and daughters if we are not loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? 
Now, I didn't say it like this. Jesus did. And if you have an issue, take it up with him. Good luck with that, right? Yes. The measuring stick is my love and gracious forgiveness to people who generally don't deserve my love and my forgiveness. Wow. If that's not bad enough, look at verse 8, 48 of what I just read. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know what I wrote in my notes? I'm looking at it right now. I wrote it with a pencil this morning. We're toast. I wrote that. Yeah, I did. We're toast. What is he talking about here? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I realize I know what he's saying. And what he's saying is this, that any perfection that is found in me in this world before that of my glorification in Christ in my new body, any perfection that is found inside my life is through Christ. That I am absolutely incapable of being perfect outside of that of being covered in the perfection of Christ so that God sees me through the perfection of his son. So now you're thinking, oh, I'm off the hook, right? I don't have to worry about that anymore. Jesus has this and I'm all good. Can I tell you, Jesus accepts you the way you are, but you can't stay that way. That's the point. That this is about your growth in God. This is about you growing in Christ and your development in Christ is what it's about. James chapter 1 verse 17. Here's what he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So this is a work of God in my life that I'm incapable of all of this and what Paul has called me to. I'm incapable of loving those that harm me and not just loving those that are nice to me. I'm incapable of dealing with the anger and the bitterness of my life outside of that being a work of God. I'm incapable of it. So let me tell you what the enemy does when it comes to this thing of anger in my life. Here's the enemy's plan. And I think it's important that we understand the ultimate plan of the devil. And the ultimate work of the devil is not to make you angry at everyone. That's really not the ultimate work. It's not. But it's to change where your hope lies. Let me flesh this out for just a moment. And it helps you to understand why you get angry at times. Because if he can change where my hope lies then when the devil is not around to tempt me, never forget that the devil is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. The devil is a fallen angel. So understand that. But if he can change where my hope lies in life, when he's not around to tempt me, he can still control me because he's shifted what I ultimately hope in in this life. Let me... Add some flesh to the bones for a moment. The more I ultimately hope in myself, the more I ultimately hope in government, the more I openly or ultimately hope in this world, the greater level of anger in my life, the more I hope in Christ, the lower level of anger in my life. Think about it. Go home. Watch the news this afternoon and look at that as your ultimate hope and see how angry you become. True. Can I say it one more time? 
the more I ultimately hope in myself or government or the world, the greater level of anger in my life, the more I hope in Christ, the lower level of anger in my life. Because I'm going to tell you, you are imperfect. I don't know if you've been reminded of that recently, but I just want to remind you of that. So there are moments that you are going to get angry. So this teaching is not about never being angry. This teaching is about how you deal with the anger when you find yourself there and you don't allow it to become unresolved in your life, which will eventually cause you to be bitter. And when you become bitter, it's going to pollute everything about your life. Because what I realize when I look at anger and the devil's goal in my life is to cause me to hope and have confidence and trust in everything else, which makes me feel hopeless. So that makes me feel angry about everything in life. That unresolved anger for you and I is an attitude of my heart and our mind. And it's not only wrong, but what unresolved anger does in our hearts is what opens the door to a lot of other destructive behavior in our lives as well. It does. Unresolved anger opens our hearts and our lives to addictions and all other kinds of things. Just think about your life and where you have been. So I wrote something this week in my journal. It's a question. Is the world an angry place because things are not going well? Or is, it, or is the world angry because of its misplaced hope? And I think it's the second. The world is angry because of misplaced hope. So where are you? Where is your ultimate hope lie? So let me move to the next thought. What does unresolved anger do in my heart over time? This is important that we talk about this for a moment. What does unresolved anger do in my heart over time? It's Hebrews 12 Verse 14, let me read it to you. And here it is. Strive is the word he starts with, the writer starts with, to be intentional, to work toward this. This is the journey for you and I. Strive for peace with everyone for, and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I underline the two words, no one. It's the paint, it's the paintbrush of grace that the writer uses, including me and others. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, he says, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. I want to talk about bitterness for a moment. It's a powerful word because you're probably sitting there saying, Mark, I am not bitter. Stop. You know, right? Yeah, that's what you're thinking. I'm not bitter. The word bitter, same word for sourness. Think about that for a moment. The same word for sourness. It's a resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. But that's not the word that really popped out to me in this text. It's what he says later. And by it, many become defiled. And so I looked at the word defiled because I want to know really what is what's being said to us from the writer of the book of Hebrews, because that's the word that jumped out to me. And what I realize is that all sin results in guilt and that of the breaking of the law of God. Yes, it does. 
But there are certain sins that just do not break the law of God. They change my inward compass in life. That's what defilement means. That it changes my inward focus or my inward moral compass of life. It's dangerous. It tells us how dangerous bitterness can be within our lives. It's like somebody putting a dangerous chemical into our water system. And we hear about it on the news, right? We know it's happened, but after a while, what do we start doing again? What do we do? We drink, right? We know that that event took place. But we drink even though it is polluted. And I thought about what defilement means to you and I. It's exactly what he's saying. That bitterness pollutes us even when we're not thinking about that initial circumstance that we first were angry about. You see, the anger can leave you at times because you're going to forget about what happened to you. But the bitter spirit still finds its place in your heart and soul. And it changes the moral compass of your life. It's like the polluted water. We continue to drink it, but the pollution is still there. It's why Paul uses the term the root of bitterness. Because it's a sin that changes our hearts. It changes the compass. It changes our spiritual bearing and our direction. And the book of Deuteronomy says it does bear fruit. And the thing about bitterness is that when it bears fruit, it usually bears fruit against those that didn't even have anything to do with our initial moment of anger within our lives. And so we find ourselves bitter and we don't know why we are bitter. It's sourness for you and I. You're angry and you can't even remember why you're angry. You wake up and you have a wonderful life and God has blessed you in such an amazing way. But you find yourself angry and you really don't even know why. Why? Because it is a spirit of bitterness has taken root in your heart. Because it derived from unresolved anger within you. It's not just when you get older, you become bitter. Don't paint it with that brush. Understand that. I'm 64 years old, and I'm taking that pretty personal, if that's the way you're thinking that right now, okay? I am. It's not just that. What I realize that life, it doesn't take a lot of life to make you bitter. It does not. It takes one moment of you being harmed by someone that loves you. It takes a moment of you being rejected. It takes a moment of someone breaking your trust and you find yourself there. And when you find yourself angry, then, then hey, you know, I, I understand that in my humanity, I get that as well. But when that, that anger is unresolved in our lives, we find it morphing into this spirit of bitterness, this root of bitterness that simply finds its way into our heart and changes our moral compass because the word for that of defilement is the same word that is used for to pollute. So it pollutes everything about us. 
here's the way that bitterness works in our hearts and our lives. It's the one sin that does not feel sinful when we commit it. Understand that. It's the one sin that does not feel sinful when committed. I want you to kind of rest in that for a moment. Because the more I've been unjustly harmed, the more my bitterness feels like justice. And we all know that God loves justice, right? So nobody's going to run around repenting for loving justice. It's just not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. And that's exactly the way bitterness works within our life. That's what makes it so dangerous. That's why Paul deals with it here in the church in Ephesus. Because it's happening. They're getting angry at one another. They're not resolving the anger through forgiveness. And so it's simply morphing its way into bitterness. And then it's changing their moral compass. And it's affecting everything about our life because it is a pollutant in our life. So I thought about that. So if you're going through the coffee line this morning... And someone turns around and they're not aware that you're behind them. And all of a sudden they spill coffee down the front of you, right? What is that a moment for? It's a moment for anger, right? Yeah, yes, yes. For the spiritual people in there, you said forgiveness, love them. Thank you for the coffee on my shirt. I appreciate that, you know. But yet it's that moment, right? Now, most of you are not like me. I bring multiple shirts with me on Sunday morning to change into in case I get a stain, right? And, and I do that sort of one of my quirks. Actually, also in case I get a wrinkle in one of them as well. But, you know, God's working on me in those areas, okay? So just, it's just me. You know, pray for Reba. She's the one that's got to live with me, right? Uh, and, and so you don't have three shirts like I have up in my office right now. And so you have this intent, what, to go home and you're going to get the Tide Pen, right? The miraculous thing that has been invented, the Tide Pen to go. And you're going to get the Tide Pen and you're going to take care of that. But when you get home, you decide that you're going to lay it to the side and deal with it later. And a year later, you find the shirt with the big coffee stain. So what's the easiest thing to do? Use the Tide Pen when you get home or use it a year later. You say, Mark, that doesn't take a lot of really smarts to really understand what the easiest thing to do. But I want to say to you, then why do you allow your anger to take root in your heart when you know that you should deal with it immediately? You see, I knew this would be a quiet session. I knew that, right? I knew that there would be no amen, you know, those kinds of things going on. I understand that. I, I, I really do. I didn't say a whole lot of amens when I was writing all this this week. Trust me, I did not. And, and Reba and I had some discussions about this as well concerning my part in where I am in this process. So my last thought with you this morning is, how do I break free from my anger and bitterness? I think that's important. How do I break free from my anger 
and, and my bitterness in this life. Let me go back to Ephesians for a moment and let me set this up for us and then we'll pray in just a sec. Ephesians 4 and 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the fuel. I underlined this. Here's the fuel for all of this. As God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, he says. Wow. That's a, that's a tall order, isn't it? But then God, I love it because the way God speaks to you and I, that he doesn't just say, this is what I want you to do. This is who I want you to be. But he says to us, this is how you're going to get there, is what he says. He doesn't leave us hanging. And he simply says, as God in Christ forgave you, and that is the fuel for you and I. What does this mean? What this means for you and I is it's a journey. And it's a journey for us about moving past the theology of forgiveness to enjoying being an agent of that very same forgiveness that you have been granted in Christ. That we know that we are sons and daughters of God when we're no longer just receivers of grace, but you and I become transmitters of grace. That's how we know when we have become sons and daughters of God. Those were the words of Jesus. I think most of us say that, you know, that our goal in life is to be godly. And, and I understand that and that's my goal as well. Then you're never more godly. You're never more like God when you, other than when you are freely and cleanly forgiving others. Because bitterness so defiles you and I. It so pollutes everything about us and changes the moral compass of our lives that it requires a very powerful antidote. And here is the antidote for bitterness in your life today. It's Romans 12 and 19, the NIV version. And here's what it says. Do not take vengeance, my dear friend, but leave room for God's wrath. And I underline that, leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God. John Piper says it's so powerfully. I wish I'd said this, because if I'd have said this, I'd have put this on a T-shirt. And it says, if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. I like that, right? If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. And what happens in our life is that that the enemy begins to shift our hope and shift our confidence away from God to the things of this life and to ourselves, And all of a sudden we need, we leave no room for God to work in our lives. Bitterness sets in this unchecked anger sets in our lives because we've shifted our hope to something else in this world. And I need a strong antidote because bitterness has a way of finding itself and reappearing way down the road in my life after the details of the harm that was done to me are long forgotten. So today, maybe your bitterness is toward you. What do you mean, Mark? Yeah, maybe you're bitter at yourself today. The grudge you hold today is a self-grudge because of your life and what you've done and the failures of your life and the mistakes that you've made. 
And so your hope is shifted from God being your forgiver to you being your forgiver and you can't find a place in your heart to forgive yourself. And so you hold a grudge against yourself. Yes, you should be angry at sin. I'm not saying that. And Matt Holloman last week talked about that. They were angry about the things that make God angry. And I understand that as well. But even the anger toward your own sin has to have a shelf life because that's not the right fuel for you to run off of. Because hope in Christ says that when I come to him, I'm a new being in him. We've talked about that in Ephesians. That I'm not just an old model of car with a new paint job that God has put on, but I'm a new being. But what I realize that anger and bitterness are habitual sins that need a very strong antidote. And the antidote is the question, in whom do I hope? Where's your hope? Is your hope in government to fix things that are wrong? Then you're going to be angry. And that anger will turn into bitterness in your life. Is your hope in a relationship to fix you? Then can I tell you that you're going to find yourself in a place of anger? And that anger will, if it's unresolved, turn into bitterness in your life. If your hope is in your profession, if your hope is in the wealth that you accumulate in this life, if your hope is in anything but Christ, then you will find yourself at some point in a moment of anger and that anger will transition into bitterness. It's going to happen. And so what Paul says in Romans 12 is that we make room for God to work in our life. We make room for God to work. And we make room for God to work in the life of those that have harmed us. Trust God, not yourself. Oh, I would love to speak to you about some thoughts. And I had a lot of other ones for this morning, truthfully. And and man, we could go on for hours talking about this as well. What to do when you are harmed and how to turn the other cheek and what that means for you as well. And so many other thoughts that we could talk about this morning. But I felt like that God wanted to start with our hearts as well. Because that's where anger and bitterness began. So the antidote for your anger and bitterness is to leave room for God. Leave room for God. So Selah, my two-year-old granddaughter, she has a doctor kit at our house. This is it, right? And in it is a stethoscope. I can't even say that thing. What is the thing? Stethoscope. Yeah, whatever. You know the thing you put in your ears and you listen to your heart. Yeah. Doesn't want to come out right now. And all other kinds of things. Oh, there it is. I brought it. That's it. And you press the little button and the heart turns red on it. You know? 
and I'm always thankful that when she puts it on me, the heart starts beating red. That's a good sign, right? But she always goes, when it comes to me, to one item that's in here first. Well, first of all, she says, Papa, lay down, you're sick. That's what she says. And so what do I do? I lay on the couch. And then she says, this will make you feel better, is what she says. And she's got a little pair of glasses she puts on. She's got a little writing tablet she takes out. And she takes my name. And she says, this will make you feel better. And the first thing she pulls out is this. And she looks at me like, I'm coming for you, right? You know, because she's been to the dock before, right? She looks at me like, I'm coming for you. And, and I'll play this little game where I kind of cringe and I'll whimper a little bit. And she'll pat me and she says, no, no, no. She says to me, always the same thing. Papa, it will make you feel better. You see, the antidote for your anger today and your bitterness may be a little painful for you at first. But in the words of Sailor Greg Askew, it will make you feel better to make room for God to work. Have you ever wondered why when things are so great in your life you find yourself mad? When things could not be going better you find yourself angry and you can't put your finger on it. It's because There was an unresolved anger in your life that is turned into bitterness and it finds its way out in your life at some other time. And we all can find ourselves there in those moments. What do you do? You make room for God to work. And you forgive. You forgive. You say, Mark, but forgiveness is beyond me as a human. Listen, you hit that right on the head, and I agree. That's why every perfect and every good gift comes from above. Because it's a work of God in your life. Make room for Him to work today. So for a moment, can I pray with you and pray for you? Would you bow your heads with me or sit there quietly or whatever posture of prayer you want to take those of you in a room those of you that are watching online this morning and let me have just a moment of prayer with you this is a heavy subject I know but how can we preach the whole counsel of God through the book of Ephesians without talking about the things that Paul addresses anger and bitterness so father here we are as your children you know us so well you know our minds and our hearts you know our thoughts before we even form them 
So, Father, no one knows us like you know us. So it is absolutely a a moment that we admit or confess and not try to hide but we open our hearts truthfully to you to the anger and to the bitterness that's in our lives Father, you know as being the incarnate Christ, Jesus, you know as being the incarnate Christ that life is not fair and life in this world is painful. You came to experience all of those so that that you are our high priest who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. So, So you know those things. And God, it's so easy in this life to find ourselves angry and not resolve the anger of our hearts and find ourselves bitter. So God, in a a moment of pure openness and transparency with you, work in our hearts. God, we surrender this to you this morning. We release it. God, we know the antidote for this is to make room for you. And so, God, we make room for you. In our lives and the lives of those that have harmed us, we forgive today, Lord, as you are working through us in that journey. Because truly is a journey for us. But let that begin here. In our own hearts, in our own lives this morning today here. God, we confess our anger. We confess our bitterness, that sin that defiles and pollutes us. We confess that to you today. We place it under your blood, which you shed upon the cross for our forgiveness. Set us free, God. Set us free this morning, Lord. And we thank you for your work in our life. We make room for you today. In your name.